I remember one time we took a school trip in elementary school to a farm. At the end of a whole day of us all like hanging out on the farm and we meet all the animals, whatever, they put us all around a fire and me and all my classmates were sitting around the fire. And at some point, I remember telling this story to the whole group. And I don't even remember what the story was. But I remember telling the story to the whole group and everyone like laughing and paying attention to me and liking it and and all that. And afterwards, the teacher said, oh, wow, you're really good at telling stories. I don't even remember any other details about the farm or when that was or who that was or what story I told. I feel like I've always kind of had this idea of, oh, I really like talking to people and I really like talking to a big group of people and I love trying to make people laugh. And it just was something that I couldn't kind of stop myself from doing. Welcome. I'm your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. Last week, in our Christmas week episode, we talked about creativity with my friend Lynn Pulsifer, who is the founder and chief creative of Salty Cactus Creative, a boutique branding agency based in Austin. Lynn is also a painter and a filmmaker. This episode is coming to you on New Year's Day. It's a holiday week, so we're going off to the regular script again. We're staying in the creative world, although we're moving to comedy, and you're getting a unique insight into my personal life. You actually know my guest from this. The official podcast theme music. That's right, we're talking to Nicolas Cattaneo, composer and producer of the theme music. He's also a comedian and, as you may have guessed from the last name, my son. We recorded two very loose sessions during Christmas break and I ended up with a lot of content, so I decided to break it into two parts. For full disclosure, I mix and match content from the two conversations to keep a good grouping by topic. In today's episode, part one, we talk about how Nico got into comedy and learn how comedians develop their craft and the role of open mics. Next week, we will cover some of the other performance parts into club comedy. We will talk about a few of the other comedic ventures that Nico is doing in New York. I will share with you the names of a few comets that I got exposed to thanks to Nico. And we will discover what barking is and how it helps comics. And before you get into the show, make sure you go and follow Nico on Instagram at Nico Cattaneo Comedy. Also, as I mentioned, we're going to talk about some of Nico's comedy ventures in the next episode. But I want to make sure that I give you the names today. So he hosts a comedy series every other Friday in Brooklyn at the Fiction Bar. And you can find out about that at, at High Hello Comedy Show on Instagram. The series called High Hello Comedy. And then he has a pop-up comedy restaurant that he does every once in a while in New York, where he brings in a chef and some of New York's best comedians. And you can find about that at, at FullBellyNYC, also on Instagram. And now, enjoy the episode. Have fun. Nicholas, welcome. It's great to have you here. This is our New Year's Eve episode, even though we're recording early on. The people who are listening know your name because I mentioned it at the end of every episode because you are the composer, producer, and mixer of uh, our podcast music. You also happen to be my son. Hence, <laughs> not a surprise. Even <laughs> the same last name. <laughs> <laughs> the credits of the show are just, it's just, <laughs> it's the same guy. And a comedian. Hello. So I'm going to start with the same question. I know the story of your life, more or less, but 
my listeners don't. So I always start my podcast asking my guest to introduce themselves to my audience. And you can take as much or as little time as you want. Okay, cool. Well, hello, everybody. My name's Nico. I'm Dino's son. I was born in 1935 in a marsh. And now I'm 80, 90, 91, whatever that is. No, that's not true. I'm 24. I live in New York City. I am a stand-up comedian, among other things. I bug my dad a lot. And I'd say that my favorite hobby is making podcast intro music, of which I've only ever done that once. But I sure, if you're listening and you like it, I sure do hope that you hire me to do that again, because it was a dream come true. One could say that the podcast intro music to this podcast is kind of like that's my The Sopranos as a, as a creator. It's my magnum opus. Let's get into it. You know, we gave you a great education. You went to an excellent school and, you know, studied physics and music. And while your physics classmates are now derivative traders on Wall Street or they work at NASA, you are a comedian. So what went wrong? Did I fuck up as a father or did you betray all the trust <laughs> that I put in you as my son? <laughs> No, I think it's less a story of what went wrong and way more a story of actually what went right in that I think that, yeah, I don't, I, it's funny you brought up physics because uh, I look at where my all my classmates, almost none of them actually went into physics. And I mean, a couple of them are like working on black hole research and stuff like that, but actually all, almost all of them went into other career paths. And I think that kind of how I ended up doing stand-up is that, you know, I always wanted to be a stand-up comedian. And then physics kind of, you know, it, put me on a path of trying to figure out how stuff works and problem solve my way through things. And it equipped me with tools to navigate kind of any situation, not just math problems and algebra. So I, I think that, you know, it's like, uh, for, okay, for everyone listening, I double majored in, uh, in physics and in jazz drums and kind of always with the intention of doing stand-up comedy after that. And so it felt like I was kind of picking up knowledge about other things to then apply to stand-up. And that's where I am. So you are a creator, musician, as you said, mainly stand-up comedian. What made you decide to become a comedian? I just remember always like making people laugh all the time. I have this memory of, I don't think I've ever told you about this, but I remember one time we took a school trip in elementary school to a farm. And at the end of a whole day of us all like hanging out on the farm and we meet all the animals, whatever, they put us all around a, a fire and me and all my classmates were sitting around a fire. And at some point, I remember telling this story to the whole group. And I don't even remember what the story was. But I remember telling the story to the whole group and everyone like laughing and paying attention to me and liking it and, and all that. And afterwards, the teacher said, oh, wow, you're really good at telling stories. And... I feel like, I don't know, recently I've been realizing that I don't even remember any other details about the farm or when that was or who that was or what story I told. But I just would that I feel like I've always kind of had this idea of, oh, I really like talking to people and I really like talking to a big group of people and I love make, trying to make people laugh. And I don't know, it just was something that I couldn't kind of stop myself from doing. And how did it go from this feeling of knowing that you love to tell stories and make people laugh to realizing and understanding that the path and the channel for that was stand-up comedy? 
Is there a moment, a particular moment that you remember? No, I don't know. It's just I've always liked making people laugh, hanging out with friends. And I don't think there's one moment. I don't think I even have a moment when I really realized that, oh, I want to be a stand-up comedian. I think I, it's always just been in the background. Oh, and I'm going to be a comedian was kind of always the idea. I think I remember, I don't know, when we'd go to school, mom would have all these CDs of stand-up comedians in the car. We'd listen to stand-up a lot. And I remember standing like with my friends in high school and I'd like recite jokes that were not my jokes as my own personal anecdotes. And I loved the feeling of making people laugh. I remember telling a whole group an entire John Mulaney, like a three minute John Mulaney bit as if it was my own story. And so, I don't know, I've always wanted to be a comedian. Can you do a Mulaney bit? Is there anything you remember? Since we're not going to give away your jokes, but if there are jokes that are right in the public circulation. <laughs> I listened to so much Mulaney that I can do most of his first three albums, like just word perfect all the way through. I don't want to do a Mulaney joke, but I, I can do a pretty, like his voice is like, hey there, I'm John Mulaney. My name is John, I'm John Mulaney. Now, growing up, you know, he sounds like that a little bit. Do you have any anecdote from your childhood, et cetera, that you want to do in a Mulaney voice? <laughs> My name is John Mulaney. I was born to Dino Catania. Now, your dad might be doing normal things. My dad, he's making a podcast. My dad loves making a podcast, and you're listening to it right now. My name is John Mulaney. What do you mean? What do you mean there's gonna... I don't know. He does other voices, too. Sorry, that was... I don't know what that was, but maybe it was fun. Maybe it was good for you. All the listeners. Hello. That was pretty good. Let's now move on to taking my listeners into the gritty life of a New York comedian. Because I think a lot of people are comedy fans. We see the specials on Netflix. We see the special on Comedy Centrals. You know, we see some comedy shows, situation comedies about the life of the comedians. So we have a fairly romanticized view of what it is like to be a comedian. But tell us the scoop. What was one of the first thing that you did? You moved to New York, I believe, three years ago. That's how you started in comedy? I actually started doing stand-up comedy on Zoom. I did a year of doing open mics on Zoom where I was doing four or five open mics a day on Zoom in the pandemic, and which is a whole nother thing. And I don't even know if it counts as real stand-up comedy. So I kind of moved to New York fresh. But uh, I don't know, the first thing that really struck me when I moved to New York was just everyone was so nice. I feel like you have this image of everyone sitting around a table and they're mean to each other and they're roasting each other and whatever. And yeah, that's part of it. You know, people are saying horrible things about each other all the time, but all of it is so much out of love for each other. And it really is such a, there's a common understanding that we're all trying to do this thing that's really, really hard. And so people are there for each other and people are willing to compromise on, on everything just to help each other all kind of push through this challenging thing. We've had a lot of conversation when you have explained to me, you know, what are the, the different steps that it takes from coming into New York as a brand new comedian and then as you move up the stairs and, and, and what you need to do. So why don't you tell a little bit of that to my listeners? You know, what are the steps? Like you come to New York, what's the first thing that you need to do if you want to become a comedian? I mean, any career in the arts, there is no process of steps that lead to any kind of guaranteed success or anything. But stand-up is definitely the closest that it comes to that. And specifically, like, club stand-up is... And in New York, New York is a place where there are people that have been there for 15, 20 years that are waiting for their turn. 
and people that are new and people that are everywhere in between, people that are famous, people that are not famous. And so the result of that and the result of a community of people that all work very hard is that there are, unlike other careers in the arts, there are clear steps you can take to try and further your career, even though at the same time, it's still always going to be, there's a million different pathways to becoming a successful comedian and all of them are valid and all of them work. But I'd say that in club comedy, there are different tiers of clubs. You move to New York and if you're starting comedy fresh, you know, you do open mics and then you try and meet people and you try and get your act better. And then hopefully some of those people that see you at open mics, maybe think you're funny and book you on their show. And then there are kind of more entry level clubs and definitely like scammier comedy clubs that you can kind of start performing in. And at every level of comedy, there's people above and people below you. But the kind of the next level is always clearly like, and you can kind of see what it, it's clear, even though it's maybe not, it's maybe not clear what the step is to get to the next level. There's a hierarchy that is defined. It feels like. So what does a day look like? you know, of a comedian that's coming to town and open mics? Well, you're just, you're trying to write as much as you can. You're trying to get on stage as much as you can. There's like nine different scenes in New York. There's so many different bubbles of culture and whatever. And so you kind of just go to as many different places as you can and, you know, just immerse yourself in it. And it's as simple as you go there and you start doing it. And there's a Facebook group, New York com comedy scene right now is, was like, is like the main way to find out about open mics. But years ago, it was a website called Bad Slava, and I'm sure it'll be different, you know, three, four years from now. But that was the main source. You just meet people, you ask them what open mics they like. And then eventually when you, you just go to as many as you can and you write as much as you possibly can. And, and when you say as many as you can, you know, how many open mics do you do a week? When I first moved to New York, I was doing anywhere from 15 to 20 a week, so two or three a day. But then there were some days when I'd do five and some days when I'd do none. So it varies. And I think every person has a different way of figuring out how to be creative. So I, coming from like a music background, I studied jazz drums in school for the listeners who don't know me. For the listeners that do know me, fuck you. Why are you listening to my dad's podcast? <laughs> no, go check out the other episodes. If you're listening, here's what I think. If you're listening to my dad's podcast just because I'm here, then you're here for the wrong reasons because this is a good podcast. And if you're listening to this and you know me, go listen to a real episode. <laughs> go learn about real authentic leadership because I'm lucky to be here. And if you do that, then you'll still hear my amazing, incredible opening theme because it's, it's on every episode. It's not just this one. But uh, you totally lost my train of thought. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I went to a lot of open mics because I think I was coming from this jazz background where I really pushed myself to practice in a very regimented way. And I was in a lot of classes. I took lessons and I did all the books and I did it in a very by the booky way. And I think that you and I are, we're similar in that we both love to learn through books. You know, we're people that like, we like the process. We like figuring out how to do it, how it works. Our brain is in common in that way. And so coming into comedy, I felt like the way that I played the drums as a result of how I'd learned it was very, I felt stuck in the ways of the book and I felt like I felt boxed in and I felt like when I played it sounded like kind of cookie cutter jazz drummer stuff instead of kind of having my own twist or my own personality to it. And on top of that, I felt like I kind of had this really negative 
uh, relationship with the instrument where it was very like, because I'd been so hard on myself on being strict about practicing and doing it in a regimented way, I felt like it was really tied into my self-worth and it was hard for me to sit down and practice and feel like I was doing a good job just because I'd put so much pressure on myself to be putting as much work into it as possible in the by the book way, doing rudiments, you know, learning the technique and doing all that. And so when I started comedy, I was like, you know, whatever feels like what that thing is, I'm going to try and walk away from it. I'm just going to only just follow the fun as work as hard as I can in it, but I'm going to try and do that in the way that stays the most fun for me. And so the result of that is that I found myself writing a lot better on stage than I would when I'd sit down with a pen and paper. And I wrote a lot with a pen and paper and with a computer, but only when I really wanted to. I never developed that kind of like discipline that a lot of writers talk about. And instead, that discipline became stage time, where it's, if I'm going to write on stage, I need to be on stage as much as possible. And so for me, being on stage 15 to 20 times a week was like the right amount for me to be still developing my craft. But for someone else who maybe is has a more thorough writing process where they're not, they're coming up with things that are good and almost finished even before they're on stage, maybe less time would be appropriate. But for me, it was like, I just needed to be on stage as much as possible so that I could even come up with things because everything that I came up with when I sat down with a pen and paper just sucked. It was so much more fun to have an idea and get on stage and you know, it's a lot of bombing. You get on stage with an idea and you're like, whatever, I think refrigerators are funny. And you, you get on stage and you say, I think refrigerators are funny. And no one replies to that because it sucks. And so then you kind of have to dig yourself out of the hole, which is a different pain than sitting and writing. But I felt that was more productive for me. So that's what I did. So for the people who are not familiar with this world, why don't you take us inside? What's the difference between being on stage at a regular club and being on stage at an open mic? Like, what's the scene like at an open mic in New York? Who are the people in the audience? What's the feel? Open mics feel much safer because an open mic, you're in front of your peers and there's a very safe, there's a feeling of you can fail because everyone who does stand up understands that it's really, really, really hard. It's so hard. And it, it's really hard to be good at it. So it feels like there's a real camaraderie among the peers and comedians who are at the open mic. Um, are people actually giving each other feedback? Are they giving each other comments? What's the culture and the scene like? Yeah, as I said, it's, it's very supportive. All the comics are very supportive. I mean, it's what I just said, but comedy is really, really hard. Comics understand that. And so people are very lenient and understanding when you suck at it. When you suck at comedy, especially at the start, people don't enjoy your comedy and they won't laugh, but they're not going to say, oh, he's a worse person because he doesn't know how to do stand-up comedy. I've seen really famous people bomb terribly. And I know that that's not a judgment on their quality as a comedian. It's actually just stand-up is so hard. And it's definitely not a judgment on who they are as a person. Yeah, I understand that. Now, I just want to... Wondering if you would be willing to touch a little bit on the difference between being on stage in front of a open mic crowd and a regular crowd as you're building your act. When you're at an open mic where the audience is comedians, yeah, I mean, you're gonna, not going to get a laugh at all. All those people are people that watch eight hours of comedy a day. So it's going to be hard to get them to laugh. And honestly, like 
things that they laugh at might not even be the right things. They might laugh at just the really dark or the really surprising or the really different thing instead of the thing that will work with the crowd. But at the same time, it's a, it's a really safe space to fail and to experiment. Whereas then you get in front of an audience and, you know, it's, those are real people that maybe paid to see you. And all of a sudden there's this feeling of like, okay, you better, you better bring it. But the idea is that by doing it so often, you feel the same level of safe and comfort with normal people as you do with comics and then with bigger and bigger crowds. And that's how you end up being whatever massive arena comedian that just looks like they're so at home in front of whatever, 10,000 people. Yeah. And as we're having this conversation, something struck me. In the current conversation, I think across all disciplines, there is a lot more of an acceptance and almost an encouragement around the fact that failure is a critical component of the learning experience. And as you said, you're living in a scene and in an environment that does encourage failure. That said, there's a lot of failure around developing a successful act. I mean, getting to five minutes of funny comedy requires hours of non-funny. <laughs> For me, hundreds of hours. But it's, it's true. I think that definitely, I feel like as a culture, our understanding of failure as a necessity for growth has gone up, like our awareness that you need to do that. But at the same time, it's so easy, especially in a creative thing. When you see someone sing and they suck, you're like, oh, they suck. <laughs> you know, that's just how they are. They have no talent. They suck and they're bad. And so stand up is a really, really unique artistic form in that you see everyone at every level continuously fail. And so that makes it so much easier to just say, yeah, failure is a necessary part of learning how to do this. And if someone fails at this right now, when I watch them, that doesn't mean that they're bad at this or that they will never be bad at this. I don't know. I think every single thing that you can do as a person takes 10 to 20 years to like master. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you're doing. Everyone, it takes 10 to 20 years to master a given thing. And when you see someone who's mastered something, even when it's a kid, who looks like they're just, they're just have a gift. It looks like they have a gift and you can't see the just thousands of hours of work that have gone into it. And so stand-up is really cool because you see everyone at every level putting that time in. And so there's a safety in this feeling of, oh man, none of us are special. And there's a couple people where they do it and then they break through faster than other people and they get they get lucky or they're like better at stand-up quicker but for everyone it really does it takes like seven to ten years you know i have friends that started doing comedy and made it on really big tv shows after just a year of doing stand-up starting from zero at an open mic to being on tv within a year and that might look like wow that person's a prodigy they're special they're different when really it's actually just that they have worked really, really, really hard. Like the, the, the couple people that I'm thinking of, they were doing way more comedy than everyone else's. And I'm sure that whatever situation they had to navigate through life before then prepared them to t stick to stand up quicker. It still must be hard. You know, when you're on stage, you think you wrote a new bit, get on stage, you deliver it and it doesn't work. How do you pick yourself up from that? And, and is there a learning process to that too? There is definitely a learning process to that. I mean, I think stand-up is figuring out yourself. You know, it's about figuring out, okay, 
How do people perceive me? What's the way in which I am, fun- like, what's the way in which the instrument that I've been given, my body, my voice, my whatever, is the funniest? And how, how do people react to it? And then also taking care of yourself as a performer. So it is a lot of failure to go through and it's a lot of performing to go through. And so in doing a lot of it, you kind of learn tricks to figure out, wow, what makes me feel better after I bomb? How do I not want to just kill myself every time I have a bad set? Because it's not sustainable to want to kill yourself every time you have a bad set. And so for me, it's like, I go, I eat food. I walk around New York City and I, I don't know, I walk around New York City always cheers me up. And then I try and spend time with someone who's not a comedian when I, when I do bad. Because a lot of times my non-comic friends think I'm a little bit funnier. And it's a nice ego boost to hang out with people that think that I'm funny. And it makes me feel like, oh, you know, maybe I didn't connect with these 30 people that I just bombed in front of. But here are some people that I can connect with. And it feels good to connect with people. So that's what I do when I bomb. What do you do when you when you fail? Oh, I never fail. <laughs> uh, exhibit A, my son. <laughs> I'd actually been uh, Exhibit A on my successes. Like, I, I never <laughs> fail. Like, I can look at my son. Yeah. No, I, I, it's interesting. You learn. You know, you learn. I, I spent a lot of time in therapy. <laughs> Yeah, therapy is awesome. But also, I think there's been a lot of, I don't want to bore people with that, but there's been a lot of work in the past 30, 40 years around meditation, mindfulness, and the connection between the body and and the feelings and the brain. And so there's a combination of things that I do that have to do with like just meditation-like things and also talking around actually the specific situation or the context. Yeah. Is that a good good answer? Yeah, I like that. Well, that was a good digression, but I want to go back to our main topic, which is giving my listeners an insight into the world of the stand-up comedian in New York. Those 5,000 people who at some point may end up on one of our screen, either through an HBO special or a Netflix special, but that right now are in the process of uh, building their chops. So we've talked about open mics. What are some of the opportunities for somebody who's going the club route to actually get real stage time in front of not comedians, but regular humans? So there are comedy clubs in almost every city in the, in the world. And that's a specific style of comedy. And that can be a good entry point for people to try and start doing comedy. So that's one option for people. There's like a lot of those clubs will have open mics that you can kind of get your foot in the door there from, or they'll have various arrangements where more amateur comics can come in. So they have a thing called bringer shows, which is like a lot of times a scam, but that's where someone like the booker lets you perform if you bring a certain number of audience. And then there's all kinds of other different arrangements. I have a friend, a friend of mine works at a door at a club and she gets spots at the club because she works at the door at the club checking people's tickets in. And so there's all these kind of like entry level points to get into club comedy. But at the same time, club comedy is, it's a relic of an older comedy scene. And the result of that is that there are these big institutions that kind of function as gatekeepers to the greater industry. And with the internet and with people kind of figuring out how to do stuff themselves, the comedy clubs are having less and less power. And that's both a good thing and a bad thing because a, a club can can be a really great institution to be a part of because it's a lot of stage time that you don't necessarily have to be famous to get and you don't have to 
tell, get all your friends to come out to shows. But at the same time, those clubs are booking still, it's like a lot of like straight white guys. And so there's all kinds of different pathways now that exist where you can, you know, you can make videos on Instagram. And if you're doing the right thing, you know, you'll have whatever hundreds of thousands of people follow you and, and that you can get connected to an agent or a manager through that. And then the agent and manager can then get you opportunities for stage time and put you on tour and do all that stuff. And so there's more and more opportunity to not go through clubs. That was a good place to stop. Next week, we'll pick up the conversation, discussing more in depth what bringer shows are. We'll talk about barking and some of Nicholas' other comedy ventures. Plus, I will tell you the name of some of the young comics I discovered by attending Nicholas shows in New York. For now, thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, find a friend who may enjoy it and tell them that they should listen to it. And if you really like the show, tell your friends and post about it on social media. Every little bit helps. Make sure you subscribe to the show on your favorite listening platform so you don't miss any episode. And if you listen on a platform that allows ratings and reviews like Apple Podcasts, Audible, Good Pods, please leave us a stellar rating and a review. Five stars. For more information on the episode and all the links, go to the website al4ep.com, spelled with the number four. You can email me at dino at al4ep.com. Make sure you follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. The handle in both places is at AL4EDP with the letter D. And on Facebook, you can look for Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solutions. The theme music was composed, produced, and arranged by our guest, Nicholas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums, with Tony Savarino on guitar and Jesse Williams on bass. And, as a musical end, Here's a version of the theme that never made it, and here's a little backstory. When Nico sent me the final version, I felt it was too bare, so I added sampled horns and a couple of guitar parts to the original. Turns out he was right. I made it too busy to use under people talking, but it is fun to listen to, so enjoy! <laughs>